0: Hi, this is Jeff Cher, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts ben rock and Ilya friedman hey ben how you doing
2: i'm doing awesome remember a couple weeks ago when we did this in the same room together and now here we are just do lazily doing this from home like we have been for the last year
1: you know it, it is convenient it's convenient to do it from home are you wearing pants now I, you i am always wearing pants uh anyway so ben who's on the show today Amazing cinematographer, someone whose work
2: is emblazoned upon all of our brains. Jeff Juror, cinematographer of probably most famously Dirty Dancing, but uh, has had an extraordinarily steady career working on giant stuff like how Stella got her groove back and currently Bridgerton. That's right. And a whole bunch of other
1: stuff along the
2: way. Holy crap. He's amazing. I love talking to him. Uh, he's got such clarity about, you know, the kinds of choices that he made. And it's always cool to talk to someone who made just one of the most legendary films of all time. Dirty Dancing is a movie that just lives rent-free in all of our unconscious minds. We've we've all seen it, and it's a movie that really has legs on which to dance dirtily, I'm, I'm guessing. But... <laughs> But no, it has legs. Like, I feel like it's a movie that I remember when I was in high school, all of us had seen it and all the girls loved it and all the guys were kind of too cool to admit that we'd liked it. And today people still reference that movie. It's one of those movies that if you say, don't put baby in a corner, like 90% of all people will know what you're talking about. It's, it really is, uh, it's crazy. And it's one of the things that, uh, cheap segue, we wanted to talk about as a close focus, which is what makes a movie hold up.
1: Yeah. Good question. It's especially interesting now because the remake, the reboot is so popular, but there are some movies that, let me tell you, they're, they're perfect exactly how they are. They should never be touched. They are, it would be it'd be sacrilege to distort the memory and the opinion. And boy, you know, if, if the movie is perfect, but that seems to me the overarching reason in which movies get remade is not because there's some great art or some new twist or some extra special thing. It's money. Money is well, the it's reason. Plus, money,
2: and, it, and it's like nothing uh, sells a movie like not having to bother selling a movie from the ground up. Like you just made me aware uh, off mic right before we started recording that there is a remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels called The Hustle. That's right. And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I would say, is a movie that holds up perfectly. Not that you couldn't remake it; they turned it into a Broadway musical, I believe. But that movie is so pitch perfect. Michael Caine and Glenn Headley and Steve Martin are all just like at the top of their game. Frank Oz is directing. Everything about that movie is just
1: aces. And I'm like, why would you even bother? The movie is phenomenal. But of course, there are just these like bizarre sort of moments in it, like Ruprecht. And I, I will tell you, it's like one of those indelible, memorable scenes. Like, um, I just, you know, here's another movie that, that should never be remade, which is uh, Stand By Me. When I say the pie-eating contest in Stand By Me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is an indelible yes. scene that is burned into your memory exactly the same way as that Ruprecht is from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I feel like things are tarnished if you, if you go back. Now, that being said, some movies probably really should have a reboot. Well, there's one that I, that I
2: keep wishing someone would do which is remaking John Carpenter's They Live. Yes. And I think They Live is a really cool movie. By the way, every movie we've brought up so far is from the 80s. I think <laughs> They Live is a really cool movie, but I think it is an example of what we're talking about here, which is it's not that it's bad, but it do, there are elements of it that don't hold up very well and could be improved upon. It's, it's such a, an amazing world that they opened up. It's and that fertile, they,
1: fertile ground to explore
2: like legendary is going to remake the toxic avenger the trauma movie (laughs) and um the toxic avenger is a class it's a cult classic but you really do run a big risk when you remake a cult classic because especially if you throw a lot of money at it it's not going to have the down and dirty charm that the original had people are going to be expecting a real movie out of it and if you lean too into the camp i think that it'll feel kind of forced in a way like Dario Argento's 1977 movie Suspiria, which is a horror classic. If I was going to teach a, a, a class, a college level class on horror movies, first week we'd be watching Suspiria. And they remade it a few years ago. And it's not bad, but it's like, why remake something that's such, a, such an auteur piece? Like, that is synonymous with Dario Argento. And it's just dangerous. It'd be like remaking Blue Velvet.
1: It'd be like remaking Buckaroo Banzai. Like, why would you even bother? One of my favorite remakes is actually uh, remade by the same person who made the original, and that's Heat 1995 Mm -hmm. is a remake of uh, Michael Mann's TV movie, L.A. Takedown. So, uh, I mean, it's 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 also interesting. It's, it's really possible for someone to kind of mine the same territory and do something new and see, or do something broader and really let it breathe or really dive in it, into it in a, in a different way so uh, I really appreciate it when when things like that happen you know you know what I, I'm hoping uh, does not get rebooted although I think there's probably a, a fair chance of it. Is the Kardashians? The Kardashians have. It's just announced that they're going off the air. No more Kardashians. I, I'm. I'm pleased to say. Perhaps maybe it's too smug of me to say pleased. But I've never seen an episode. I may, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe it's the yeah, best I'm,
2: thing I'm ever. Not, I'm not bragging by saying that I've. I've never seen an episode. Uh, my friend Maral loves them. Uh, loves that show and loves them. And I just don't care for reality television and it's not a knock on reality television that's
1: me saying that is not my taste well i will tell you that it's interesting when something is successful and it goes away. They figure out a way to bring it back, and that happened with American Idol. Went away, came back. You know, it, it's it can absolutely happen in reality. And just because the the latest Kardashians, which whichever Kardashians it is, uh, you know, even today when I was perusing Variety, there was a story there about how Kanye West had decided to to unfollow all of the other Karda- all the kardashians including his his ex across uh, all of social media and i'm like was this a story but oh yeah there's a giant n- amount of uh, of america who follows and, and absolutely keeps up with all of the keeping up of all these individuals whose lives whose real lives have become their their entertainment uh it, it wouldn't surprise me even though it's going away but they're not so, their real f- lives that's that's
2: the problem okay. with
1: reality television for me Okay, so it is their fake real lives. I don't think anyone really believes it's 100% their real lives, but it's their it's their fake real lives, for
2: sure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say what the show was, but I was at a production company where they were building a set for a reality show that was about a person's real life. It wasn't the Kardashians.
1: And they built a it, set for it.
2: Yeah. They built a set for this person's office. And I said, surely this well-known celebrity already has an office. And the producer I was talking to kind of looked at me and laughed and was like, You don't know how we do this, do you? (laughs) Because I just thought, oh, you just bring some people with some cheap ass cameras to this person's office and follow them around all day. No, 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 no. It's it's all fake. Dana Gould, the comedian, had a line about reality television, how it was shows that were written by people who aren't writers, starring people who aren't actors, pretending (laughs) to be in situations that they would be in. Except that they aren't, and that we're expected to kind of sit back and passively accept that this is their real life. And uh, again, I'm not down on people who enjoy reality television. I'm not down on people who make a living on reality television. We've had people on here on the show who shoot reality television, and it's real, honest, kick ass work. And some people are doing amazing work at it. I also think reality kind of. You know, when you talk, when you say reality television, you could be talking about *Pen and Teller* fool us, or you could be talking about *Flavor of Love*. And there's nothing similar about those two shows.
1: Well, and I think that your wife has made a living uh, working in reality. I know I've made a living working in reality. But you know, you know my wife uh, works
2: on on *Flipper Flop*, and she uh, used to work on uh, on *House Hunters*. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Those those are, you know, they're not. I think that those are both shows that you would
2: actually say are more like real documentary shows, though, like yeah, where they are following sure. a real cir- circumstance.
1: Yes, because in House Hunters, it's not like they had ever seen any of those houses before going on the show, right? <laughs> we could get into it. <laughs> no, well, let's let's not get into it. I I don't want to you know tell yeah. anyone how the sausage is made here. But really, you know, one day here I'm going to say something that is incredibly L.A. for anyone who's listening to this who's not in L.A. I went into this place in West Hollywood for a cup of bone broth. <laughs> there it what? is. Yeah, I went in for a cup of bone broth. You ever had bone broth, Ben? It's I've really never delicious. had bone broth. Bone broth is delicious. Anyway, so it speaks
2: less of LA and more of your weird uh, food seeking. (laughs) Maybe, but I went
1: in there, and there's a reality show being shot with uh, these women having essentially a staged fight in the middle of this. This place that is a purveyor of bone broth is a bone broth shop. You might be able to get some nachos or some other stuff there, but basically you're you're going in there for bone broth. And I walked right in immediately into this like full on like, hey, we're having this like really, really sassy fight. And they would do a take. The director would come over, kind of, you know, tell the reality people, oh, you need to do this or you need to say that. It was completely staged. And then they're like, all right, let's do it again. And then they did it like four times while we were there. And then they all packed up and left. So... It's like, oh, yeah. yeah well, just, I mean, you know, <laughs> But I, I feel like that's the kind
2: of show that the Kardashians was. And mm-hmm. I remember at one point, this goes back several years, like when Jersey Shore was all the rage, being like, I'm going to watch some Jersey Shore just so I can be caught up on what the entire culture is talking about. And I watched like three minutes of it. And I'm like, you know, life is short. I don't care if I'm not that cool. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that it's just not... <laughs> It, it's weird. By the way, I, uh, totally off topic. I, I just thought of, of a spinoff that uh, that at least equals, if not exceeds, the original, and that's mm. Better Call Saul. And Breaking oh, yes. Bad. When Breaking Bad was on the air, I was like, I think television was invented so this show could one day be made. Like you
1: know. Here, here. What what an incredible spinoff. I'm enjoying Better Call Saul as much as I enjoyed Breaking Bad. Absolutely. I'm re- I'm, I'm really loving it.
2: Well, that meandered way off topic, but uh, yeah. I think we should uh, go ahead and get into Jeff Dur. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast interview. All right. So we are here today uh, talking to London with uh, legendary cinematographer Jeff Jurer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Happy to do it.
2: First off, before we even get into your whole background and your background is going to it it blows my mind. Let's talk about your most current project, which is Bridgerton, which is kind of a water cooler show. That's, you know, everyone's all excited about Bridgerton. Stars are blowing up from it. It's one of those things. It's a really interesting show. It's a period piece that's kind of done intentionally, uh, slightly anachronistically. Firstly, like just how did you end up working on the show? Like what was your connection to the material?
0: Well, I've been a part of uh, off and on Shondaland projects for, I guess, going almost 20 years, maybe 18 oh, wow. years. I shot the pilot for Grey's Anatomy. And um, off and on, I was part of the, I shot the pilot for How to Get Away with Murder. And I've done a couple of other projects with them. So I've known them for a while. The director uh, of the first two episodes on Bridgerton called me out of the blue, basically, and said, would you be interested in doing this? she was uh you know prepping in london at the time and uh, i was in new york working on uh, marvelous mrs mazel i was just wrapping up so it, it timed out beautifully i went home for a week and came back to london and started uh and started prep so when
2: i Watching a show like this, visual effects have gotten so good that it's hard for me to tell what was captured on set versus what might be like a digital matte painting or something. And I'm always curious when you're working, when a cinematographer is working on something, that, you know, where we're creating 1800s England, how aware are you of what is going to be done in post while you're shooting?
0: It's pretty clear that there are very wide shots of London, 1813, 1814 that we're not going to be able to achieve here Mm -hmm. having said that i'm amazed at how much you can capture in camera we have an incredible production designer i can't say enough about uh, about him as far as knowing what is correct for the period he's very uh, specific about his accuracy and authenticity even though it's a we consider it sort of a fantasy in a way, almost a fable. It's important that the you know, reality of that era is is seen. And so certainly built into his sets, but on location, we've been able to find these amazing street scenes, particularly in Bath. The city of Bath has an amazing depth of uh, period available in a lot of different directions, so you really don't have to put up very much blue screen. You don't have to uh, add uh, buildings, things like that. I would even... Two shots where we'd open the curtains of the windows and see a building across the street, and I'd have I'd go to Will, the production designer, and say, "Is it okay? Can we see that?" And he'd be like, well, "Those windows aren't quite right, but uh, you know that, that that should work." Stuff like that. So we tried to put it as much in camera as possible. I feel like it creates authenticity, which is which is very important to me.
2: Talk about how you went about creating the the look of the show and what kind of movies or TV shows or pictures or paintings or whatever you referenced, like where were the inspirations for creating the look? Because you're right, when you say fable, it actually does kind of pop into my head that it it doesn't have like an exaggerated fairy tale look, but there is sort of a, there's a vibrance to it, I guess is maybe the right word.
0: That's a great word. Yeah, Uh, it was important that it feel contemporary in some way. It was a funny mix. You know, we, we obviously had in our minds all of those amazing theatrical films and television shows. We looked at the film called The Duchess, actually a little earlier, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, there's a lot of these films that are amazing. Barry Lyndon, also a little earlier, but still capturing a life in the past lit by candles and natural light. You know, that was, the, that was where we were headed.
2: I was wondering about Barry Lyndon specifically, actually. I was wondering if there was any... uh, I mean, I I wonder if it's even possible to make a period piece from roughly that period without at least thinking about Barry Lyndon at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yes, you do very much so. In fact, we were on a location scout uh, in a place called Wilton House in Salisbury, outside of London, and uh, things looked very familiar to me. I'm looking around. And I thought, it feels like something that was in Barry Lyndon. I scrolled through the movie at one point, and sure enough, there was a couple of scenes in the exact room. At the beginning uh, of oh, wow. the first episode in uh, on Bridgerton, there's a presentation to the queen of all the women, uh, you know, being uh, sort of judged. Anyway, that room is a room that Kubrick shot in. And in looking at a Barry Lyndon, not much had changed in the... I guess almost fifty years since they shot that film. Oh, wow. Furniture was in the same place. The paintings were there. The windows with the curtains. Everything was the same. So it was, it was a, quite an inspiration to be in a place where he uh, he had approved uh, working. Um, so there was a lot of locations like that. A lot of places where that were just iconic. You know, uh, the crews here work on these films all the time. So for them, it's uh, you know, it's not passe, but it's you know, they know how to deal with these places. You're basically shooting in museums you can't touch or move anything, very little. <laughs> so you can roll up the carpet, maybe, you can move a table, but you can't move that table, or they bring a chair in, but you can't move that chair. And there's people that are there watching you to make sure you don't touch or damage anything. This is what they do all the time here. We worked with balloon lights quite a bit, which are sort of helium-filled light boxes, they fabric, and they float up in the air, and without touching the ceiling, they illuminate a lot of these large spaces, so we were using that quite a bit. They have these uh, machines that push frames of black against windows from the outside because you can't hang anything or attach anything or even tape anything to these locations. But they do this all the time. They use these devices called Manitou's. Uh, you know, it was like a huge window, two stories up, big uh, space underneath where you couldn't reach the window above. It was I couldn't figure out how they were going to black it out for day for night work in these locations. They said, oh, we do it all the time. So they use these things called Manitou. Like what's a a Manitou? A Manitou is like a big forklift and they build a frame and they black the frame out and they push it right up against the building very gently. And uh, we can put a light in there as well to light the windows for night. And make day for night in these you know huge spaces. So it was just incredible to be in all these incredible you know locations and see this sort of you know for me coming from L.A. in particular you know I was always excited every day. <laughs> I'm sure it was no big deal for them, but I'd be like, oh my God, this is incredible! And you know, Stanley Kubrick shot here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know, or we've been here before. Yeah, yeah. It was no big deal to them. <laughs> but uh, I brought a lot of enthusiasm, which I which I hope was appreciated.
2: That's awesome. Now, when you said that uh, uh, you look to have kind of a contemporary approach, is that uh, I mean, like, obviously you're using I I, I guess like there are, are maybe the cliches of a period piece and the way that it's shot. And then there's, you know, like Steven Soderbergh, you know, going all handheld and having techno music in a period piece. But like, what were the what were the places where you felt safe to kind of break with convention or lean into convention in terms of making something feel period?
0: Well, it's, it's in the script, certainly, that concept, that idea, that it's written. Uh, the scripts are funny. They're written in a very modern language, in the descriptions primarily. So at the table reads, you hear modern language describing what's going on, which is very funny. So you get the sense that that's what they're trying to achieve. So in the original uh, material. And then as we were you know preparing it, I kept hearing different things uh, that it was, yes, we love period look but for me in particular it was important that we not put sort of a veil over this you know view of this world that that we be engaged that it be very present so I didn't want to make it soft and you know sepia or warm or whatever the cliches are you know super diffused so it had to feel modern but I still couldn't deny the beauty and the symmetry and uh, just the general uh, tapestry uh, that we had in front of us that these people lived in. So that was important to show, but it was also important to to approach that emotional stuff that was going on, that romantic, you know, sexual, emotional stuff that was happening, that was important. And obviously a big part of the books and what fans were expecting.
2: Out of curiosity, did you read the books before you uh, jumped into it to see if there was further description or further inspirations?
0: I have the audio, but I got the audio books actually, which are really fun. So you know, when I'm in prep, I'll walk around London with my ear pods and, and listen to the audio books. And it's great because you get a lot of the backstory, which, uh, you know, they sort of hint at in some of the scripts and some of the stories. But now you understand why Anthony is the way he is or what was going on in the family. Uh, what Mm -hmm. the importance of the honeybee is in the story. We didn't know that at first. So uh, yeah, there's a lot in the books that help help explain what's going on.
1: Uh, I wanted to jump in here. Shonda Rhimes was famously uh, quoted recently, well, uh, semi-recently, back in Vanity Fair, about talking how she wanted Bridgerton to have the female gaze, wanted it to have the same sort of thing that was happening in the books to be happening on television. And uh, when I look through your filmography, uh, I see that you have done so many movies that you could say that uh, really do capture sort of the, the female gaze, the female perspective, strong female protagonists. And I, I kind of want to know, what is it? Uh, is there a trick? Is there something that you're going for? Because uh, I would say between like Stella got her groove back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> dirty I, dancing. And, and maybe dirty, maybe dancing. dirty dancing a little bit. I, yeah. I mean, how do you approach the, the female gaze?
0: I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're right. I uh, well, for one, I love working with women. I've worked with a lot of female directors and producers. I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of in touch with my feminine side. I guess maybe that helps. I'm not the crusty kind of uh, DP that uh, used to be around, but uh, so maybe there's something. Oh, in they're, my still they're still around. They're still around. I never work with them, so I, I just <laughs> hear about them. Uh, you know, what I love about Shonda and what she's trying to say to the world about relationships and race and, you know, uh, all this stuff is incredible. And what, what really came together on Bridgerton was this idea, this view of the world, that this is how it could have been. This is a, a possi- one possible world, and it's a, amazing to put that on film and put that out there and let people see what that might look like. Uh, it was, that's pretty special and so there's always something behind what she's trying to do and uh you know i'm just thrilled to be to have been part of it
1: all right well i I think that's actually a a wonderful jumping off point to to maybe talk about something like dirty dancing it i mean it was it was quite groundbreaking for the time and there's been a lot of ink spilled about how the movie is subversive and it's not really what it appears to be on on face value and how many people went to the theater thinking it was going to be one thing and it's really a story about about something else also, it's a it's a really big feature early in your career. Can you talk a, a little bit about how you how you come to that? Dirty Dancing has got to feel like a big breakthrough for you.
0: It, at the time, it was uh, it felt to me perfectly normal. I thought, oh. okay, you come to Hollywood two or three years in, you do a little movie and it's a big hit. I it, I had no idea how uh, lucky I was that that. Uh, all of that happened. So I didn't, I don't think I appreciated it at the time because I I just didn't know. I came from Chicago film school. I'd worked on industrials and, and I had been shooting dramatic films, shorts, things like that. I had done a film for American Playhouse that one of the producers on Dirty Dancing had seen. And she contacted me a few years before Dirty Dancing came up. And she was a producer who looked around this country and just gathered up people that she liked. Work that they that they did. Sound mixers and production designers and uh, you know on every level, she just found people that she liked their work and then would meet them. I met her when I had just moved to Los Angeles, and then uh, she asked me to shoot that film. And um, at the time, I was actually had taken another job. I, I was offered a television, like a movie of the week or a, a miniseries, which I liked. And she said, "You have she." called me and said, you have to be doing features, you should be doing features, don't do television. <laughs> and so I turned the other one down and, and I'm grateful to her every day that, that, uh, that she talked me into that. So yeah, it was pretty incredible. You know, I'll be on a movie set even now and uh, somebody will figure out that I worked on the film and it's usually a woman, sometimes a teenager, a kid, sometimes a 48 year old woman will come running up to me with this look. And I know what it's about. It's usually about dirty dancing. <laughs> and they'll tell me, and they'll tell me their story about, you know, seeing it or seeing it 150 times. It was the best thing they ever saw when they were 14 or 18 or whatever. Yeah. It was such an important part of their life. So to be, to have been a part of something that means so much to people. And to this day, you know, it keeps going on and on. I just did an interview for the 4K release of the film, which is coming out, I think, this year. It's amazing to be. you know to have been a part of it i I sometimes look at it. i can't believe i was actually there it's it's gone so far beyond me that it's uh, it's incomprehensible to think that i was a part of it but you know when i watch it i think about all the things i would have done differently it was you know there wasn't a lot of money there so <laughs> we made compromises that, but.
2: that's always my question when, when we talk to people who've worked on stuff that's just become legendary like just you know I- I- iconic there are frames from that movie that are like part of all of our unconscious and and it really does move people even to today and it holds up really well and I always wonder like when you go back and look at it are you like man I, I shouldn't have moved that 12k so close or do you get swept up and- it's both
0: you could do both this is how you this is how cinematographers watch movies they go It's a very technical experience, but then you're still a film goer and and probably a very passionate one because you chose this for your life, that you watch a movie and have an emotional reaction, but you can also separate out the technical aspects of it. So yeah, you watch, I watch it and see, you know, the things I certainly would have done differently. But I'm also, I'm very proud of it. And it still amazes me that I was even there.
2: When you were working on it did did it did it have an aura of like this might be something that's that's a little special i mean you've worked on i think several films in your career that are that are like that but did it have that kind of an aura around it
0: no you know it was very like i said low budget i think uh they were trying to shoot it very quickly obviously they thought it was a great idea but i don't think anybody thought the expectations were limited for what they thought Mm -hmm. it could be we we sort of joked at the beginning we're like oh there's a character named baby really this is going to go we shot for a few days without actually saying that her name and we thought they're going to change it there's no way they're going to call her baby that can't happen and they did sure enough that was you know the writer's uh nickname when she was a kid so uh so it was very personal for her and what I'm most proud of on that film in particular is the authenticity uh, of what I tried to do with the lighting and with the photography, that it wasn't too slick. There was a lot of films, dance films at that time, like Footloose, Flashdance, Big Studio yeah. movies that were very slick. And they, they used doubles, you know, to do a lot of the acrobatic stuff. And I remember Emile telling me, that's not going to happen. We're going to watch the actors dance. We're going to watch them learn how, especially the Jennifer Grey character, watch her learn how she learns how to dance, and we're we're going to experience it. We're going to see them head to toe. We're going to see what it's what it means to learn how to dance, how to learn something. So it was important to yeah, you know, it was important to him that it be authentic. And so I'm hoping I hope that my lighting and my you know the photography sort of represented that. I was always concerned that what would really be correct for the period, in 1963. You know, would they have spotlights? Would they have you know these kind of things? My gaffer actually helped push me a little bit. He says, "Well, it's a big moment at the end. We should have lights flashing and things like that." Uh, yeah, uh, but the authenticity, I think, is what rings true for a lot of people—that it doesn't feel, you know, manufactured.
1: Uh, I'd like to jump in actually and, and move forward a little bit. I want to talk about the big picture. The big yeah, picture—that was, that
0: was where I wanted ah. to go next.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: uh, it, inside, you know, certain segments, the big picture is is incredibly famous. Of course, it's Christopher Guest's feature directorial debut it's got a ton of sort of like who would become young hollywood royalty coming all all in at this point and uh the movie is just so fun and biting all at the same time and it was a huge like flop like like it, it came yeah. out and disappeared but it got this renewed life uh, on, on home video and i know that's that's, uh, where, I that's, saw it. that's where i saw it too and mm-hmm. um it continues to live on and i know it was uh, uh terry hatcher's first movie and a bunch of other stuff but yeah. tell tell me how How did you come to that? And I'm curious. Also, I wanna I wanna have a follow up question. I want to plant in your mind right now uh, because Michael McKeon plays the cinematographer in the movie, plays Emmett. And um, (laughs) uh, I'm wondering then what sort of uh, and you got to shoot all. Here, this is now a rambling, crazy question. But you got to shoot all these like short films, these student short films that all take place in the movie, and they all kind of have different looks, but they're so like archetypical student film. How does this movie, your connection to it, and perhaps your own experience in film school all all kind of come out in this project?
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I grew up in Chicago, went to film school at Columbia College, uh, right out of high school. I did films in high school. Uh, I actually got a scholarship from one of my, f- I did a 60 millimeter film in high school in black and white, and they had a f- they had a festival at Columbia at the time, and the top prize was a, a free semester at Columbia, so... I won, and uh, that was sort of <laughs> the start of my uh, career. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely from that world. I I knew the kind of films that were being made in high school and in college, and I went to a lot of film festivals. So I saw tons of films. I was looking at everything. So by the time I got to the big picture, you know, yes, I was. That was a world that I knew really well. So it was fun to push the limits on a lot of those. We had uh, that one. It was a courtroom scene, I think, and it's amazing. I think it's. Uh, Ellie Gould is in it, the mom from Lassie is in it. So I'm on the set, you know, with these amazing actors. But the idea was to light it as ugly as, bo- as possible. Chris <laughs> said, you know, it, it shouldn't be slick. You know, they, it's still a student film. So my gaffer at the time, Jim Tynes said, I got these great lights that are just flat as hell. We'll just put them up and just bash the hell out of that courtroom. And sure <laughs> enough, that's exactly what we what we did. And uh, my operator at the time, who I still work with, Don Devine, incredible, incredible camera operator to this day, he does, he gets one of the biggest laughs where the camera zooms in to the lawyer who stands up to object and misses him completely, and then reframes for him. <laughs> <laughs> it always gets a laugh whenever I see it with, uh, with an audience, anyway. So it was a lot of fun to work, and Chris is you know, pretty much a genius. And I'm not sure why he hired me. He uh, I think it was as dirty <laughs> as, as dirty dancing came out, you know, I was at the top of the non-union uh, group of people that I guess were being considered for. For projects, you know, a lot of all that stuff was non-union at the time. So I guess my name was out there for that because of that. So uh, Chris, I remember when I met him, he wouldn't say the name Dirty Dancing. He goes, "Yeah, I know you did that film. That I'm not gonna whose name I'm not gonna say." Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was a pleasure. Those guys are, you know, Chris and Michael and uh, Marty. Martin Short was in that, and yeah. uh, uh, Billy Crystal actually was in it. I think he was cut out of it, but and Rob Reiner was a, one of the producers, I think, or a part of it. They, they were all together at, from Spinal Tap. And uh, it's the funniest group of guys you can imagine meeting and working with. Uh, I still laugh at things that Chris said, you know, 30 years ago, um, a truly hilarious person. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun, for sure.
1: The, the movie is a lot of fun, and I got to say that uh, as many people as I know have heard of it. So many people have not heard of it. So if, if you are listening to this interview right now and you've not seen the big picture, uh, it, it's fantastic, and you should definitely go out and and see it. Now, I kind
2: of want to jump a little forward to a movie that I uh, before uh, we started recording, I was kind of telling you was was like uh, it was like an It movie for my class in film school, and everyone was talking about it, and that was uh, John Dahl's The Last Seduction which in a way was one of those movies that kind of pumped up indie films in, in its time it came out I think in 1994 and you did a few projects with John Dahl can you talk a little bit about one of the things that I'm noticing is that like you're not someone who gets pigeonholed in a specific genre you, you do dirty dancing and then you, and then you do the big picture you know so you move from like this period thing this you know period romance to uh I won't say a broad comedy but a big comedy and then you work constantly throughout this I'm sorry to jump over a lot. Lot of your projects, but I feel like we would be here for five hours to talk about every single one of them. And there's so many and they're, and they're awesome. But The Last Seduction is like almost a reinvention of, of film noir in a way. It, it, it was so brilliant in, in how, and in, in, in a way groundbreaking for its time. How did it all come about?
0: Uh, you know, one of my goals, I think I, I, it, well, intentional or not was not to be pigeonholed. And it certainly happens in Hollywood for sure um you know again i'm working in this sort of a lower budget non-union world at the time so you know i wasn't assigned studio films or i wasn't you know beholden to uh you know a studio or you know i could do pretty much whatever i wanted and you know after dirty dancing you can bet i was offered you know some pretty bad uh dance like movies uh which i really didn't want to do so my goal was always to try and jump around I, i you know just could creatively uh anxious when I'm doing the same thing over and over to this day. So John and I met through a producer who was on actually the big picture. One of the production uh, executives or production manager had worked with me on the big picture and recommended me to John for the last seduction and John had done uh, two movies at that point that were amazing and very much below the radar, unfortunately, but just incredible. And I'm like, why are you hiring me? You should get those guys that shot your other movies. And he says, well, you know, I want somebody who's really fast and, uh, and you know, I've heard this about you. So I said, oh, great, okay. So we hit it off and uh, we, uh, we made that film. Uh, I remember the first time we were shooting Linda Fiorentino and I was trying to light her a certain way and John whispered to me he goes I don't you know I don't want her to look that good in this <laughs> so I got a sense from John that he didn't he wanted to break some some boundaries on on the film and I loved his dark you know humor for sure and do to this day he's a good friend and uh it's great when you find somebody with a with a worldview that you share about, you know, a, a little bit of cynicism and a little, and certainly within the genre, you can break out of that a little bit. So it was fun to, to take that genre with the Venetian blind lights and all of those things and sort of mess with it a little bit um, and be sub, and be subversive. That was fun, that was a lot of fun. And it was great to do something different than what I had been doing.
2: And I'm always curious about people who are able to do that because, you know, when you're first starting out, you'd be lucky to be pigeonholed because you'd be working. But at what point do you realize uh, that you can strategize this so that you can... Play in other in other genres. Like, if you were going to talk to someone who was who was just starting out, and they said, "I don't want to be pigeonholed like you," but you know, let's say they were, you know, they had been discovered shooting romance, and they could like make a pretty good living doing that for a minute. Would you recommend they do that? Would you recommend that they turn stuff down and and steer their career? Like, at what point in your career do you think it's important to think about that?
0: Uh, I think it's always important to be able to say no if you can afford to. I've not been in that position always, so. I know what it is to say yes to stuff and uh, to work, to keep working. Um, I've been lucky that I was able to say no to certain things or and be able to say yes to other things. And and, and I owe a lot of people the gratitude that they took chan- whenever they would take a chance on me, on a film, When with something that I hadn't done before. That was, I've never forgotten any of those people. John was a big part of that for sure. And for them to see something in me that is right for their project, even though it may not have been something that I did before. It's an easy choice to hire that person who's done five movies like your movie, and that happens, and that's great if you want to keep doing that. But, you know, I didn't get into it just to work. I wanted to put something wonderful out in the world, something amazing. Film has uh, been a part of my life forever, and it's not just a job, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, what I say to the world visually, photographically, is very important to me and very personal. So I try to find projects that, you know, can reflect some part of me. It doesn't always happen, but uh, once in a while you hit on something and, uh, and, w- and you work with people. Actually, John was one of the first, you know, working on a lot of projects, and people were kind of crazy and there was, a, you know, a lot of uh, yelling and there was just a lot of tension on a lot of films uh, that I'd heard about and worked on. And I thought, well, you know, God, everybody seems to be really like a tough guy. Like this is the '80s, right? So uh, it may have been drug fueled as well. You know, there's just like these tough guys doing these tough movies. You know, I, was, I remember producer saying, "You got to be, you got to hammer the crew. You got to really beat the crew up. You know, if you're gonna do this, that's not who I am. That's not what. That's not my personality. You know, I'm able to do this without doing that." So I thought, oh, I should, I should, I gotta be like that. I gotta be that, you know, crazy tough guy, whatever. And then I met John, and he's the nicest, mellowest guy. And anyway, I met John and he wasn't that guy. He was the nice guy and he was still working at a very high level on these on these projects. And uh, I thought, OK, great. I found the person that I can work with and be who I who I am the most. So that was pretty that was a pretty special moment.
2: How much like when you're thinking about working on a project, whatever it is, how much of the calculus does the thought of like uh, meeting the director, or meeting the producers and being like, I'm going to be like, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these people for however many months. Do I like do I like them? You know, like the way you're describing John Dahl, he sounds, you know, just like an amazing person to work with. Does that figure into the calculus? Like if you had an amazing piece of material you were being offered to shoot, but you did, weren't sure about your chemistry, say, with the director, would, would you still pursue it? Do you think?
0: Uh, yeah, I think you can overcome a lot of that. And you certainly better learn how to because you're not always going to meet your friends, you know, sometimes you're going to work with on some difficult projects, but if the project is good and you can meet somewhere creatively uh, and hopefully the personality doesn't interfere, then, uh, you know, then I think it's important to, to pursue that. Um, you can work on a project that might be miserable to work on, but it's a huge success or a really amazing project. So, you know, you have to weigh what's important to you and if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, right? Right. But having said that, I really, you know, at this point, I'm trying to work very much with people that I love and, and that I get along with. And so going back to Bridgerton and recently on, on some projects, uh, you know, I just have the best time. I'm at a place where I'm very comfortable with a movie set. I, I know my way around. I know how to get out of a difficult day. I don't stress as much because that will kill you. You have to find a way to de-stress the situation that you're in. Uh, filmmaking is t- stressful enough. But um, at this point, I can hopefully find people that, uh, you know, that that work the same way that I do. I like to have fun. I like to have a relaxed set. I play music. I, uh, you know, I like to let people know that it's okay to have ideas around me. I, I'm interested in what people have to say. Uh, we have to get the day we have to do the work. But, um, you know, it, it should be fun.
2: So I want to definitely talk about how Stella got her groove back, because to me, that's, that's another film of yours that's kind of iconic that's that's hung around in the culture and people still talk about it and uh you know came out in 1998 uh how still got her groove back to me like that that's another movie that uh i mean i guess i can see a line from dirty dancing to that to a degree um mm-hmm. but like what brought you to that specific movie
0: um, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember I was hired by the director. Um, yes, dirty dancing really that makes a big difference when you have a film that is a huge hit for whatever reason that some of that success gets applied to everybody who works on it. So you know that that reassures them that in hiring me that I you know I've had this success to whatever degree it, it's attributed to me and so it's important that that happened but uh, yeah I uh, I'm pretty sure I was hired. I met with Kevin, and uh, we hit it off pretty good. We had great prep, and then we started production in and around Los Angeles, and then we ended up in uh, Jamaica for, I guess, a month or so. It was incredible, beautiful, beautiful space. Yeah, incredible locations.
1: Sounds like a great place to work if you can if you can swing it.
0: Yeah, and Angela Bass, you know, unbelievable.
1: Let, let me just, let me jump in here one second, Ben. I think that, you know, now, God, it, it's probably... 20 years, more, maybe more than 20 years. Yeah, more than 20 years since How Stellar Got Her Groove Back uh, came out. But it was, um, it was really a cultural touchstone sort of at the moment. And I, I remember a very clear, well, relatively clearly, it's a long time ago now, the, the review, I, a very short review I read of it, which um, said something to the effect of, you've seen movies about groove back getting, but this is the most groove back gettingest movie you'll ever see. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking it's like, they, they almost didn't have to say anything else. It was, it was like, it, it just kind of like became this moment in time and how Stella got a groove back was just like, it, it blew up in in this really big way. And when I, when I look at your career and sort of like the moments and things that you're in, we, we've mentioned dirty dancing and Bridgerton, of course, but you kind of have these, and it's not just this, too. And we can we can jump a little bit further forward, too. But like My Big Fat Greek Wedding. My I was Big about Fat to Greek Wedding was like
2: it, a, a super inflection point with My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. yeah like it, it, yeah. if I'm if I'm not mistaken, My Big Fat Greek Wedding for the longest time was the most profitable film ever made. Like it, made I its own so, budget yeah. back the most times.
1: And it was also in the top 10 of. Worldwide grosses for 2002 and and just to like put that in perspective 2002 was the same year as like Lord of the Rings the two towers Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets Spider-Man Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones (laughs) Men in Black Die Another Day uh, Ice Age (laughs) and My Big Fat Greek Wedding It's like you know uh, It's an it's an incredible company of, of other movies to be in there with it was such a massive massive hit
0: Yeah that was crazy I I knew we had something, I was in a restaurant in Los Angeles having breakfast, and I heard two total strangers, uh, the, the waitress and somebody at a table, talking about that movie. And the guy was in s- very passionate about it, telling her, the waitress, you have to see this movie. I had, you usually don't hear a conversation like that between two people that don't know each other. So I thought, oh boy, this, is, this could be something. And uh, yeah, sure enough, it was huge uh, for the budget. Again, I think it was $5 million or something like that. I'm not sure how why I came onto that. I met with uh, the director Joel at Playtone and in, in at Tom Hanks' company and Gary Getzman as producer, and you know we hit it off pretty good. <laughs> I guess they liked my work from before, and uh, we made it in Toronto. Uh, I was proud of the fact that the story took place in Chicago, so I kept saying, "Well, you know, I'm a, an expert in everything Chicago, so I'll <laughs> I'll know that the buildings are right or the cars are." You know the the locations are correct, all that. Um, It was a bit of a joke, but uh, Toronto was a good stand-in for uh, for uh, Chicago.
2: And shortly after that, you started moving in, into more television with a show that, uh, again, we were talking about off mic a little bit earlier, Carnival, which I think is an, a really underappreciated HBO series. Like, I, I, it was a show that I was like, oh, I watched the first episode, and I'm like, this is going to be a huge hit. And uh, for whatever reason, marketing or whatever, it just it just never kind of grabbed the audience it, it needed, I think, to keep going. But I thought it was just a masterful, gorgeous amazing show now uh did you originate that were, were you were you on uh, uh did you shoot the pilot for that
0: i did not no tammy Riker as a credible oh, cinematographer i'm an idiot we've had tammy gym. on the show it was incredible every day you know you'd be working on this set with uh, you know the depth of the trucks in the desert and the, the distance it was like amazing to build this all these shots and bring thing elements in the design was incredible and the the just the textures and, you know, we would shoot in tents. So light was always moving around, light would come under the tent. Uh, Just, there was so much to work with there that was uh, fun and visual. And it was this dark Americana, which really appealed to me as well. And uh, yeah, that was a, a very special very special project. When
2: I, when I think about that show, I always think about kind of wide, not distorting wide, but kind of wide angle, like like very everything's in focus, wide angle lenses with like a tobacco filter or something. I don't know if that was something you achieved in post, but back then since it was film, I don't know how much you were doing in yeah, post. Yeah,
0: we did. Well. The, the color timing on that film, on that show was incredible. Um, it's a color timer that I worked with at the time. His name is Pankaj Bajpai. Pankaj, I continue to work with and have worked with many times since then, and he is, in fact, co- color timing, has been color timing Bridgerton for me. Oh, sweet. So, yeah, he, he, these guys move around different places. He's a Technicolor right now. His vision expands your vision. He brings so much to the table, and I saw that on Carnival, because we had we were shooting on film, we were printing dailies and looking at a little tape, uh, little uh, half-inch tape, or like DV cam, DV cam tapes, so we were, we were seeing a very limited sort of scope of, the, of what was possible. But then he did the color timing and brought out so much more and created this sort of palette that uh, was unique at the time. And uh, it was colorful, desaturated. had a period feel, but it also had a very uh, cinematic feel. He definitely brought out the film qualities that were, that were there inherent in, in the stock we were using. So, yeah, he was a big, big part of the look of that show.
2: So around that time, you seem to have moved maybe not uh, exclusively to TV, but so much more of your credits are now in, in television, starting with Carnival in 2003. Do you have a, I, I hate to ask people, because it's maybe a hacky question, do you have a preference for TV or, or, or movies, but like, what, uh, what's the comfort in, in working in television versus working in movies? Like, uh, what's, what's, what are the trade-offs? What do you like in one or the other?
0: Well, with television, you have to be very fast. Um, I remember I did a, a mini-series years and years ago, and I'd been doing the features at that point, and the producer called me up and said, you know, this is a, this is a television schedule. You're going to have to work really fast. Are you sure you can do that? And the films that I've been working on were 25 days, you know, faster than any movies usually are. Uh, so I was comfortable with working quickly. And so television requires that. Pretty much you're working double the speed half the time. You know, it's just inherent in the scheduling. But the thing that's been happening with television, which is amazing, obviously this golden era, the writing has been incredible. So a lot of the stories and the styles of projects that appealed to me were happening more in television than in features. You know mm-hmm. there were the big are big, big movies. there's very, very tiny movies. And the movies that I was doing at that time were 10, 20 million dollars at the most. So those have kind of gone away um, and I miss them because they were that was a nice sort of level to work at. You're a little below the radar, but you're still releasing something that's a feature film. And working on a feature film scale, so television just started happening for work. A lot of my directors, uh, John Dahl in particular, started transitioning to television more. So I went with them, and John brought me into Dexter. I did a couple seasons on Dexter, and he was Love very responsible show. for for that. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible to be. I was at the tail end. I did. I apparently one of the most successful seasons, which was the seventh season. But then I did the very tail end and then uh, the ending, which has been very controversial for many years. But um, anyway, it was just incredible to be a part of a show that had had that that kind of success going coming into it. In fact, when I was on the seventh season, they had already picked up the eighth season. So I knew that I I was going to continue to work through the next year. That usually doesn't happen to freelance cinematographers. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to know that you have work and that it's going to go for a while. Often it was in town at the time, uh, so I was working at home a lot instead of traveling. And you know it's going to go out there in within a year. A lot of times, the, especially the network stuff, you're finishing a show and it's going to be on the air in about six weeks or two, three months. Um, so that's amazing as opposed to a film where not only is it going to take another year or more to get released, it's if it's going to get released, you know, whether yeah. they find it worthy of spending another you know, $20 million on you know, publicity and, and advertising and all that to release it. So it may not even get out there. So it's a bigger risk for sure. The payoff's huge uh, uh, sometimes, but um, it's a bigger risk. Television feels a little more, you know, regulated. It's sort of feel like once you're, once you're making it, you're going to keep, keep going with it. So uh, I enjoy it.
2: Well, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. Uh, before we go, is there any place that uh, people listening can uh, find you online, find your work online, interact with you online, any place?
0: Is Facebook still a thing? It is. <laughs> I do have Facebook. I'm pretty open on my Facebook page about stuff. Um, I don't have too much this season. Uh, we're we're trying to keep things under wraps so that the fans can be excited and not uh, know too much before the show comes out. But uh, you know, I have a lot of stuff from before, and uh, I hope to go onto Instagram soon. Uh, I've been very shy about it, but I want it to be a place of creative space and not just the latest you know brunch that I had. Um, so I'm hoping to put some of my photos and stuff on there that, uh, that I've been taking since I was a kid. So I, yeah, hopefully I'll be, I'll be on uh, Instagram soon.
2: <laughs> cool. Well, f- well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, congratulations on all of your career. It's pretty amazing. But uh, fresh congratulations for Bridgerton and the massive success that that's been. And uh, we hope to bring you on when you have your next big thing.
0: Great. Thanks so much, guys. It was a pleasure.
2: So that was Jeff Gerr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was amazing to hear all of the insight on all those huge projects
1: he's shot over the years. Yeah, it was great. I'm so glad that he was on the show. So much fun. And now, short ends. So Ben, we've reached that time, that famed time, that time once again, short end time. Short What's your end. obsession this week? What what do you got going on?
2: Well, there was no uh, NAB so far this year. Isn't there going to be one in like October or something?
1: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think October November is what they're what they're saying now. So, yeah. but
2: a lot of products did release kind of new versions. They versioned up on stuff, and Adobe Premiere released like in their final thing. In in the new Premiere, there's a new. I know this is going to sound super boring, but you'd be shocked at how often this becomes a thing you have to do in an edit. They released a new closed captioning tool that like huh. blows my mind how much better it is than the old one. And then it's still in beta, but it's coming. They have a feature that will make closed captioning even easier because you'll finish your edit. You'll send the file off uh, or, or you don't even, you're not, you're not sending it anywhere. You're just kind of telling premier to go ahead and do it. And it will do speech to text for, for your whole thing and basically lay out your subtitles for you. Uh, that's and it, not, works. It's not, it works? It's not currently in there. So it's no. in beta. I've seen demos of it working. And it's the kind of thing where you're going to want to go back and double check the math. You know, like it's going to screw up words here and there. But closed captioning, I won't say it's it's not the most time-consuming thing and it's not the most difficult thing. And Premiere's closed captioning tools have gotten much better over the last, I'd say, four or five years and now they've integrated it into into the timeline in a way that works really elegantly I'll say and gave you uh, they've given you your own like window for text that that uh, lays it out a much much easier to look at much easier to edit it much easier to fix it now you go closed captions who the hell needs them well, if you're doing anything that's going <laughs> Turns on out a lot of people. onto yeah. YouTube, anything yeah. that's going on to Facebook, any, anything that's actually going on to network television, you're going to have to do it. And I feel like in this current world, like if you're if you're making, uh, you know, uh, NCIS or something you know, the editor isn't gonna sit there and closed caption this stuff. But if you're doing your own editing as I do on a lot of projects that are gonna go to some kind of social media world, there's usually a little sidecar file, the one that Facebook likes is called an SRT, that you'll wanna generate. And you've been able to generate that out of Premiere for a few years. But streamlining the workflow for that, I know this is a super boring short end for me usually.
1: Boy, I'm I'm asleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, usually, it's so hard to get excited over closed captioning. Isn't it like, is. You? It is. It is. But but <laughs> I'm trying be, really hard to be on the edge <laughs> of my Ilya, seat here about how this ever, is your obsession. If you'd
2: ever had to fucking sit there and make closed captions, you would understand <laughs> uh, how amazing it is that Premiere has finally woken up and been like, Oh crap! Everybody who's making videos for every social media outlet has to do this. And if you or if you've ever like been watching a video on your phone on YouTube uh, without actually clicking on the video, so you just saw the closed captions go by, somebody had to generate that crap, and uh, it's and probably it's,
1: bla- badly and probably automatically.
2: Uh, they, there are some automatic generation tools for it, and they all suck. But, uh, if, if, but if but that's if that's
1: what Premiere is, it's automatic generation.
2: It's not automatic generation, but it is speech to text. Uh, Um, OK, so it's it's kind of going to be as good as as any machine learning based speech to text generator will be, which, again, I'd say the really good ones of those are probably 90 percent accurate. And you still you still have to go back and proofread it. But believe me, proofreading is going to if all you have to do is proofread it, you've just spent, uh, you know, like one tenth the time that you would have spent generating it in the first place. So anyway, maybe not the sexiest uh, short end I've ever had. Usually it's a podcast about someone murdering somebody. But uh, I still think it's an important thing. And if you're a, an Adobe user, it's definitely a big help. Oh, OK. So That's follow awesome that motherfucker.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, I'll try my best. Uh, y- you know me. I am not a particularly big fan of Marvel. I said it. Marvel, I'm not, I'm not like chomping at the bit every once in a while. Champing. The, uh, the expression they, is champing it, at the bit. It's champing. It's not chomping. Correct. Oh, I'm going to have to Google that later. So, okay, fine. Champing. I'm not champing at the bit for every Marvel thing that comes out. And I got to say that I try to just turn off my brain, let it wash over me and just enjoy it and try not to think too much about it. Ask any questions, anything like that, because that is the way to enjoy Marvel stuff, it seems. So when my kids were really excited about watching Loki. I kind of, you know, uh, you know, I, I begrudgingly sat down on the couch because I was like, OK, you know, every sort of like, uh, you know, anti-hero is going to get something now. And so it, it's Loki's turn. Holy crap. Was I wrong? I, I think this was it was so tight and so well done that I don't know how they they maintain after this first episode. The first episode, so blown away, so slick. Maybe it's because they started, got shut down for the pandemic and then got to come back to it and had a whole bunch of extra time. I don't know but I loved it. I think Loki is uh, brilliant. I thought that Owen Wilson was great. I loved seeing uh, some great supporting actors sort of like pop up in roles on this as well too like uh, Eugene Cordero who has been in places things like The Good Place and tons of other stuff as as a voice actor and they have this sort of like 50s animated character called Miss Minutes. They have all kinds of anachronistic sort of low technology in this sort of time out of place. Loki's great here I'm revealing what, what a giant nerd I am but I will tell you that I think it's the best thing that, that Marvel's done in quite a while, and I, I really loved it.
2: Well, I have to say, and I have not watched The Falcon and the Winter Soldier yet, but I thought WandaVision was just pure brilliance. I just love WandaVision from beginning to end. You know, I'm not super pro-Marvel. I'm not super anti-Marvel. I kind of take each one on their own, and I felt like the last two Avengers movies were just like, you know, it was like eating an entire cheesecake every three minutes for for five <laughs> hours. Like, it was just too much of a good thing. And at the end of the last one, when, like, I was like, wait, they have a Pegasus? Where did that come from? Like, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, this is just like, it's fan service upon fan service. And I think that TV enables them to kind of drill down and kind of open up a character a little bit and let you kind of explore their psyche a little bit, which is what was so great about WandaVision. And I think what we have to say overall is Disney Plus just killing it with these series i mean they you are know, the mandalorian sure. brilliant show and i think that what they're doing is like they're really appealing to the fans but they're doing it in a really smart way and i know i make a lot of i talk about this a lot but it's like when you have technology companies like netflix and amazon prime making tv series and then disney steps into that world you go okay well disney maybe has a little bit more of a tradition of actually doing <laughs> th- this kind of work
1: mm. Yeah, they, they definitely feel like they've got the big guns. They definitely feel like they uh they know what they're doing and they're they're hitting it out of the park every time. And I got to say that, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier, I mean, it, it was a it was very solid. They do, they're doing a lot of solid stuff, I feel like in the TV realm. I'll go out and say I feel like even perhaps more clever and better and certainly more engaging to the general audience versus the feature films which do as you said feel like fan service it feels like you know servicing the comic-con crowd in a way that perhaps the television show doesn't necessarily do the same well
2: and i and i feel like the mandalorian made by completely different people but for disney plus really drilled down on what a star wars fan wanted and just like gave them the sloppiest most awesomest version of that like here you go and uh, they're making an Obi-Wan series with Ewan McGregor, and I'm assuming it's the same supervising people are gonna be on top of that, and I can't wait to see what they do. So, hooray for what Disney Plus is doing with their, with their TV series. I mean, so far, I'd say they're knocking it so much more out of the park than any relatively new
1: streaming service ever has. Agree, they're, they're kicking all the butt. So Ben, I, I think that, that just about does it for us. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, get more Ben Rock in their life?
2: Uh, you can get all the Ben rock. You want in your life at Benrockonline.com. And, uh, there you will find all the links to my social media, uh, empires. Feel free to add me. People from the show have been uh, adding me on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. And, uh, as long as you aren't uh, saying offensive things on your things, I will always add you back. Nice. And, uh, Ilya, where can people find you?
1: you can find me in probably some of the same places uh, but also at hot red cameras you can find, I do not we can have find a,
2: you at benrockonline.com that's
1: weird well I meant I mean I could platforms. add a link I, 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 I wouldn't meant mind the platforms. Not, not, not necessarily benrockonline.com but, super weird uh, I do not have a, a social media empire it's more like a fiefdom so you can visit my social media fiefdom at the different sorts of uh, places out there don't you really use twitter I do use the instagram occasionally and then the Facebooks and the things but linkedin seems like a lot of people have been reaching out via linkedin that's that's cool that works and hotradcameras.com sponsor the show we sell lots of camera equipment you can buy all kinds of cool stuff for us from us and support the podcast at the same time that's really all we ask so um
2: before we go who do we need to thank this week as opposed to all other weeks copy paste from last week
1: (laughs) great question uh let's thank our guest again jeff Jur. jeff jeff was, was great to have on the show yeah and uh let's also thank Kay Zalatrachi first Woot. this time he's definitely not listening but we'll thank him for everybody's. sure not
2: listening to this episode
1: definitely not but uh, but provided all the music that you heard that's right uh let's thank ben katz editor extraordinaire edited us tried to thankfully not make me sound too dumb about talking about bone broth
2: so that, that was great i think he probably left all the bone broth stuff in and uh, he probably l- did. last but not least we should definitely thank alana cody Holy crap, so many great interviews that she's set up for us. And uh, I can think of at least three coming up that uh, I think will definitely interest our listeners.
1: I I think so as well. I think that uh, we got all kinds of great stuff coming and uh, holy crap, I can't wait. It's going to be good. Really good.
2: Excellent. So we will see you next
1: week. Thanks for listening.